HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Have your own cup. Oh, you got water. Okay. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Kate Cox. Today we're broadcasting live from Slow Food Nations in Denver. And we want to thank our supporters, Hearst Ranch, Big Green Egg, and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. It is a great pleasure for me to have some terrific experts uh, with me today to talk about regenerative ag, land use, soil health. We're going to get into what all of that is, but I'd love to have each of you introduce yourselves briefly and talk a little bit about your work. So Grant McCargo, let's start with you. Great. Thank you so much for having us today. So I'm Grant McCargo, CEO of Biological Capital, and we're a land investment company that looks at food, water, energy, and habitat, and how do we do it in a regenerative versus extractive way. And Meriwether Hardy. Thank you. I grew up on a farm in Vermont and have dedicated my life to looking at how do we grow food in a way that's good for the people growing it, good for the planet, and accessible. And so I'm here and really excited to be here with members of my team. Hi, I'm Lily Hancock. I am the ecological designer at Biological Capital. And my work has focused really on the traits that plants have evolved that allow them to live at the intersection of soil and atmosphere. Okay, so lots of heady stuff on our plate here. (laughs) But let's start this way. Lily Grant, could one of you talk to me about what biological capital is? Because the word itself is loaded. It is loaded. It's how do we, it's basically about how do we live on this planet in a way that's putting more in than we take out. So the bio and logical is how do we live in this planet in a logical way. And I think when you look at land use, it's all about land use to us. And how the human settlement patterns have evolved, we've lost about taking care of our land. And our land is where survives our planet, our ecosystem services, grows our food. Um, And I think what we think about a biological capital is how do we, as humans, live on the land that we put more in than we take out. And that's that's all we think about. It's something of a new way, though, to to think about investment, for instance, right? That we're not looking at investment from a a strictly cash development project-oriented perspective, but much more holistically 
about resilience and building that in and connecting people back to the land that we're on. So how do you talk to people, potential investors for instance, who um, may not be speaking this language yet? How do you get them interested in this as a project? Well, actually, it's a really, it is actually a very smart business model. What's this, one of our challenges of our historical industrial model is about taking things away. So if you look at industrial monoculture ag today, if you're just planting something and you're tilling the soil, but you're extra losing topsoil every year, eventually that game runs out. So we're, if we're looking at an agricultural use on the land, then how do we build that topsoil, that organic matter, that biological life to be more and more productive every year? So it's actually a, a super smart business model. One of our challenges is looking longer term as a society. We're rewarded today for quick profits. Investors want to see things happen daily, quarterly, annually. And the thing that our investors have is they're looking at 10-year cycles instead of one month, six months, year cycle. So it may take us three or four years to regenerate a piece of land, but from there on, it's more and more productive every year, giving a higher yield. So I want to talk a little bit more about this because as, as a reporter, we, we have a similar challenge, which is acquainting people with the ideas behind soil health and regenerative ag, but in many ways, it's not something you can see. So I'm not always able to point to this patch of soil and say, this has been rehabilitated versus this commodity patch. How, how should we be thinking about this? You know what? Let's back up. Will one of you define regenerative agriculture? Let's start there. And then we'll talk a little bit about how you how you get people to understand what's, what's at play. Yeah, so regenerative agriculture for, for us um, really means bringing more into the land with agriculture than we're taking out. And so that's really thinking about the ecology and the biology of the system. Um, how do you build soil health? What plants are you putting on that soil? How are you pulling CO2 from the atmosphere, really storing it in those plants and returning it back to the system? And the thing is, you know, as you were saying, how do I show somebody this soil has been regeneratively um, taken care of versus this, which has not? And, and you can show someone that. And that's, I think, the most beautiful part of the whole story is that the biological system responds to that type of input, to that type of care, to regeneration. And so when you're looking at soil or you're looking at crops or plants that have been cared for in a regenerative system, you're seeing more organic matter. It's richer, it's darker, the root structure is deeper. There are all these beautiful signs that actually show that amount of life in that soil. And so there are these tangible these, these pieces of information you can use to teach, it's just getting people to actually come out to the land and stick their hand into the soil. And that's where I think a lot of the disconnect is, is that we're not engaging people in a way that we can um, and using the natural teachings of the land to kind of help people better understand how they care for the world. And I actually have a great example, building off what Lily shared, where we work on an old failed conventional dairy farm in Vermont. And we have turned that into a fully integrated regenerative agriculture operation. What that means is that we are both growing the food, but then we have built the infrastructure there for the farmers to take it all the way up the value chain. So they are able to turn the raw product into value-added products and to use every piece of the animals that we raise there, nose to tail, in different bone broth and sandwiches and soups and meats that you can take home and cook. 
And so that project, Lily has been leading a really interesting research project where the land there was very compacted when we took it over, very clay-based, and had been monoculture soy for generations, and, and corn and alfalfa. And what we have seen in the last couple years of holistically grazing that land, we have seen a tremendous increase in organic matter. And in one of our 50-acre study pastures, we are seeing that that soil now retains to 2 million more gallons, gallons of, of water. water. And so when you multiply that across the land, that land is more resilient. So for in a year of drought, that land is healthier. The root systems have access to water. And so I agree with you where it's really hard. It's not very, it's hard to talk tangibly about the impacts of regenerative agriculture, but we are also seeing and really exploring and collecting a lot of data right now on the quality of the produce and the quality of the meat and the taste. Because one of our goals would be to help show that if you're a farmer and you're using these practices, you're, the meat has a certain terroir of that soil. And there's a unique brand, a unique soil, uh, story for that, that meat. But that the farmer can therefore uh, get access to a higher market and people to pay more for that product because of both the quality and nutrition uh, of, the, of the meat or the vegetables, but also because of the practices that were used. So I think you, you make an, an interesting point that part of the way that we help people wrap their minds around long-term investment in land and watching, uh, you know, patients with soil rehabilitation processes is to connect it to the couple of, of really evocative aspects of farming that an average eater, you know, has. So that would be animals. That would be taste and smell and getting your hands dirty. And I wonder if any of you want to talk a little bit about how differently regenerative agriculture thinks about animals. I've had regenerative ag farmers tell me that they see animals now, if they're doing this kind of work, as co-producers. Um, and I'm always interested in the way that this either changes our relationship to animals or at least the way we think and talk about them. So I'll pass this over to Lilia Grant in a moment, but one thing that we really believe in is that holistically grazing with animals is a really important way to build back our topsoil. And so a lot of the conversation in the food world today is about right or wrong or left or right. And to me, it's about everything in moderation and animals when you support a certain system can be a really important part of sequestering carbon and healing and building back some of the topsoil that we've lost in our country. And so that's just one thing I'd like to put out there and I can hand it to you both as well. Yeah, um, I think that when you're, when you're working with people or communicating about these different topics around regenerative ag, and as you mentioned, kind of connecting them back to the animals or the taste of food or all those types of things, there's there's a lot of there's a lot that people don't understand and i as meriwether talked about this just now but part of kind of how these systems have evolved over time is the integration of animals of livestock with the evolution of these grasses um, of the forage and so when we're talking about holistically grazing animals on this land what we're really talking about is thinking about the evolutionary history of that space and how that evolved and how do we use that understanding to really to create something that should actually be there and is naturally occurring. And so as a scientist, I kind of keep going back to those fundamental biological and ecological principles and using those as really a platform to further kind of push um, 
the type of work that we're trying to do. And then when we're talking with a consumer, so at the farm in Vermont that we've been talking about, Philo Ridge Farm, we are telling the story of taste. And when we tell the story of taste, we're telling the story of the soil. We're telling the story of the forage. We're bringing that into the language when we serve a meal. And so thinking about that important connection point um, is something that we kind of keep going back to in our work. And, and the regenerative part, if, um, if you have a farm that makes livestock with vegetable production, your organic matter is already on the property. So if you can use your animals to build up the soil, not only where the pastures are, but in the wintertime, we put our animals in a pack barn and they're um, putting that manure that we then recycle into compost for two seasons later. So most organic farms, if they're just a vegetable farm, they're buying that organic matter where we have a closed loop system that the animals are actually helping the food production hugely. And the biggest impact of regenerative is the economics. That closed loop system makes a huge difference on your end of the day finances of it. Water retention, a big cost is irrigation, especially when you think about this week we're having right now across the country. If our soil is holding um, more water and 1% of, of, of or on one percent of more organic matter on acre land holds 16,000 gallons of water. So if we've added five or six percent organic matter over a few years, that water retention makes the production and the cost of growing significantly less. So I'm interested in, now I want to just ask about the two most provocative things that I always uh, end up in a discussion about when it comes to talking about this. So I, I have talked to a number of farmers who are making the transition, however slowly, um, and one in particular I have in mind who was, who was transitioning a, commodity, a family commodity farm of 3,000 acres to a much, much smaller operation at 750 that they could sustain. And I, I, I'm loath to bring up the issue of scale because that happens all the time when talking about food and it's a binary. But I am, I am curious, are we talking about starting small? Like, does this have to start small? Can we be thinking about 3,000 acres of a corn commodity farm? Or do you have to run smaller operations fundamentally? No, I think scale, scaling is just how you execute it. I was just at the previous conference about the future of farming. And technology is not, is not evil to regenerative. It's, it's actually how to be smart. How are you monitoring the soil, um, mixing more crops? And I believe in the next 10 years, uh, uh, autonomous vehicle technology and AI that's going to be applied to agriculture is going to allow you to do many small at scale faster. But that diversity of many small can still be one operator. It's just how you do create that diversity to create that biodiversity of life that supports regenerative agriculture. Nowhere in nature do you grow 10,000 acres of one thing. And I think that's the hardest thing from a conventional farmer's thinking to how do I have as much diversity to that as possible. And I think we, our goal is to stack as many uses on that land. And having that diversity also helps us manage the commodity side of growing food. So we can't control the prices of commodity, but if we're going 20, 50, 400 things, we can ride through that cycles. Just like in a mixed-use real estate project, if you're just having an apartment building and the apartment mar building market gets soft, you're totally exposed. But if you have retail, office, residential, uh, renewable energy in your real estate, 
you have that diversity. How do we bring that same thinking to agriculture gives you a more robust derived through cycles too. And I think as, as part of that, one thing is that as you ask a farmer to diversify, you're asking them to wear so many additional hats and have additional knowledge. And so there has to be appropriate financing, technical support, but something we really believe in is there's a community behind agriculture. And so as we look forward and we think about future models, we right now are actually looking for land in Colorado where we would like to do a really exciting project that is all about building workforce housing for farmers uh, in a very small place, and, or a small kind of high density, and then around that doing a large conservation agriculture project where you have many farmers using the same land, and you may have one farmer growing a certain product, and then someone else taking it further up the value chain. So you may have a potato farmer growing potatoes, but someone else in that community is then turning that into potato chips. Or, or, so you're not expecting the same person to take it all the way up through the value chain, but that you're working in a community. Grant likes to give this example all the time where if you live in Silicon Valley, you have an idea for an app, there are so many places you can take it to help get uh, financing or someone to help you put together a deck. And so we're trying to put together a similar concept for how do we create a farm incubation hub that allows for financing, technical assistance, uh, people working together in that system and the security of a built-in market, yep. which is yep. part of why commodity yeah. farmers often say, I can't leave the system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's something I also want to just touch on before we get into my favorite question, which is how do we make this more possible for, for people? It seems to me there's something of, a, of a, a, a philosophical hold that commodity farming has had on all of us for 100 years, or at least strongly for the last 50 or 60. And one of the things I've witnessed over and over in talking to farmers who are thinking about transitioning is real anxiety and pain about leaving behind a system that will subsidize you if things get kind of terrible. And, and you know, early stage regenerative ag of four or five years ago was very much seen as sort of an, a strange evangelism or sort you know, touring the country to t and, and sitting at people's farm tables and having these real discussions. Um, but I wonder how you address that terrible anxiety that folks seem to have about getting out of a system that has backed them, but also has forced them to use the subsidies that they rely on. Um, and it's a big, hefty question, but I'm interested because I think there's something of a spiritual component. If you've been working the land for 50 years, that's what you know. This requires you to think longer term than you probably ever have had to, and also to start making the connections between production and rehabilitation. And those things seem to still live in a binary, right? Every time I talk to a politician about this, this is often the, the chant is production, though. Production, yield, yield, all of that. How do, we, how do we heal that disconnect and make it possible for people to think about this? I'm glad you asked that question. And actually, Meriwether was talking about a project we're working in Colorado. How do we build, not be, a, a farmer today is in a remote location and you're very much on your own. And that's scary, especially if you're gonna change how else around you is working. Can we create a series of new communities to support each other to go through this process together? and share infrastructure, share a little bit of the risk management. It's actually going back to how we probably farmed 100 years ago. When you had to raise a barn, everybody came together to raise that barn. And I think that we're look, to us, the future is actually looking back, but using technology and also knowing about the human settlement patterns. Today, 
millennials don't want to go live by themselves. They want to have the interaction with others. Uh, the human species generally a very social critter. So how do we put ourselves back into community around agriculture that gives support to do that? But it's also a smart business. How do you share inf infrastructure? Back to the potato farmer. If they could get their organic matter from the livestock side of the operation to fertilize their field, and if they could take the waste stream out of the potato processing, because if they're selling the products to eventually retail, not all potatoes make it there. There's quite a few that get pulled out. But if there was another entrepreneur in the community who says, I'll take the potatoes you can't sell to market and make a sweet potato soup or french fries or something else, you start having a shared economy. Similar to, uh, once again, Meriwether mentioned the iPhone. In the technology world now, there's huge infrastructure to support an idea. We have to create that same kind of culture around being an agro-entrepreneur and not feeling you have to do it alone, but you have community with you. And I think that's a concept, but how do we create these new communities is a challenge, and it's going to require public policy to think about setting up that a rural community could have maybe a density pod to allow that. Um, and as anything new happens, it takes the leaders and risk takers to do that. And there's a lot of money out there um, who want to make an impact on how we grow our food today. I actually think there's more access to capital on regenerative and uh, more sustainable strategies than I've ever seen. It's actually finding the opportunity to deploy it is hard to find. So we welcome any calls. That's all about our company's about is putting people together with land and with investors, helping them write business plans and helping them get through that initial startup stage to make it happen. And I actually think it will grow into a community level project for the ultimate success. Because if you have a community that your kids still can ride their bike to school and one parent can go work in a little bookstore in town or a coffee shop and the other parent can go work out in the field um, and then they can bring their products together in a little town, it's actually how we did it not that long ago. And the modern day farming has really been post-World War II. And I think what we're realizing now is that model won't go forever. So it's just, a, it's just a question of looking at new ways to do it. And the best way to get people to change is see success. And we're very fortunate to have a few demonstration projects right now that are being successful. And that will encourage people to take risks too. So as Grant shared, a big focus of our work has to been to do these pilot projects really so that we can keep building the business case for regenerative ag agriculture. And it takes time. It takes time to change soil. It takes time to increase yields. It takes tangible examples to have other people understand it. As Grant said, we have so much interest in our work right now, I feel very hopeful. Uh, he just left, but we had Phil Taylor here in the audience, and he's raising a really innovative fund right now called the Perennial Fund to help farmers bridge that gap between going from more conventional to using uh, different practices. And so I'm actually seeing a lot of different it's hard, it's scary, and there are leaders and different people putting together really thoughtful financing, technical assistance, risk management. I feel like where I have not participated enough is on the policy side, which is a whole other world that we need equal kind of support and people doing good work in. And I just want to follow up when Grant mentioned it's a barn raising. It really is. I, I think a lot of this comes back to getting out into community, talking to people, having these different you know, successful projects 
and really like disseminating knowledge and, and, and kind of on a grassroots level in a lot of ways because right now there's a lot of transition going on in farming, new generation, you know, starting to take things over, a lot more information, even the scientific world is starting to really catch up to some of the some of the things we've always known work, but we're really putting numbers to all of that right now. Um, and so I think that there is, there, the, having a, you know, strong communication and working with people and telling that story, it will always be incredibly valuable. And a lot of our work is really talking with other people, getting this information out there, using numbers and facts to really share what we're doing um, and help to prove that not only is this good for the earth and for the land, but it's also economically viable. And so being able to have both economics and the, you know, the, the scientific data and merging those is, um, we're finding pretty powerful in kind of the story we're telling. And I think you know, my, my world has a, a strong responsibility to help translate a lot of this through human stories because ultimately human to human is often the way that these um, conversions start to happen. But I do want to end on the easiest question of all, which is the political. I'm going to run a panel tomorrow on where food and ag sits on the 2020 ballot. And there is, I think, encouraging movement toward regenerative ag practices and, and incentivizing it at the, at the state level and even at the local level. But I wonder if any of you have a thought. One thing that we have covered a little bit in, and find interesting is an alternative crop insurance product, that there is a loophole in the existing system that that allows us to create another product if there's enough movement behind it. Politically speaking, do any of you have a thought on what would be helpful on the policy side to move this forward? Uh, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. Meriwether will probably be more articulate about it, but what I'd love to see on the policy side is for the government to stop subsidizing agricultural, period. Because how does new innovation come in when the old practices are subsidized? and the market will settle itself. So I think that. Or make the subsidies equal. It's always hard to make subsidies equal. So I think that's a challenge. The other big role that policy can influence is we've lost the infrastructure for small-scale farming in our country. If you are growing a small herd of animals, but you have to drive your animals four or five hours to get processed, and there's not enough capacity to handle that in your region, that's a major issue. So there's some, the policy has to really deal with failed infrastructure or infrastructure that's gone away. The industrial model, uh, industrial scaling of it before has really just made the smaller scaling it really impossible to enter. So I think those are two policy issues that could, that could really make a big difference. Renewable energy, as an analogy, required subsidies to get the technology there today. Renewables now can compete right along with, right along with fossil fuels but it took years of that subsidies to make that happen. Agriculture, same thing. The infrastructure's not there to really go to regenerative, and so that's a great public policy shift to say, we're gonna invest so that these small farmers can make it, and that many small can get to scale in that regards. Meriwether, Lily, anything to add there? Not I mean, I think the heavens have given us rain in this moment after saying that we want to end uh, subsidy, the subsidy system. Did you have anything we wanted to add? Maybe just to add yeah. on to that, I agree that small-scale farmers have such a hard time making it. And to, and 
thinking about the infrastructure, the different permitting and zoning that is placed upon them and the burden that they have of making it easier for the many small model to succeed. And then I think that with focusing on decreasing or equalizing or ending subsidies, there of course needs to be a really robust uh, support system to help those farmers mm -hmm. into transitioning. It's really hard to be a farmer yeah. living, that's a great point, Mary, if they've had stacked the infrastructure around subsidies, how do you just stop that hard? And I think that's, a really, that's probably one of the bigger challenges. I'd like to bring one more closing thought too. Here we are in Lammer Square, downtown Denver. And the future of Lammer Square is being proposed right now to bring agriculture on the rooftops here. In fact, Lily and Meriwether have just done a little uh, demonstration farm on top of the parking garage. The future of agriculture isn't just in the rural landscapes. Before World War I, 70% of the food came from people's backyards. It's a much bigger movement to how we grow our food. And if we look at climate change, we need more resilient models. We need to be growing food everywhere we can in as many different ways as we possibly can. Even in the middle of cities, how do we start growing food? And the technology is there, the know-how is there. It's getting people aware of it and providing the resources to do it and public policy to support it. And anyone's welcome to come check out the rooftop farm. You just go through the tunnel and it's on top of the Larimer Square parking garage, sixth floor. And one of the goals of that project, as Grant was sharing, is to really collect data on what can we grow on rooftops in Denver. We don't think it's ever going to be the one kind of way that we get our food. Uh, larger scale production and production outside of the city is gonna continue to be so important. But thinking about how we also bring people in a more urban environment to have their hands in soil and understand about farming or how we can serve greens and herbs here on the street that were just grown up on the rooftop. And another really, for me, exciting part of that project is how we manage a, a private space that we open up to the public and it, we have it be a productive space. It's a working space, it's a farm space. But really how we understand that tension between, especially in urban areas and green spaces, how we understand how we can grow food, educate people, open ourselves to the community and have all those things be in balance. And Lily was the key designer between all of that. So maybe we can just hear her, her closing thoughts. Yeah, I, I think when I see that space, what I envision is an extension of that in which people can connect not only to their food ecosystem, but to natural surrounding ecosystems. So not only do we have fruits and vegetables up there, but we have all native perennials. And so as people move to cities, we need to start really thinking about what wild spaces are and how we connect everybody, not just the people who can afford to or live outside the city, how we connect them to plants, how we connect them to soil, uh, because those, those connections, as we were talking about, and that communication uh, is really at the heart of change. And so that's what we see a space like this being now and in the future. And it goes back to your question or point about tangible impact and demonstrations and how do you tell the story. And for us, our offices are two blocks away, and when we can bring people two blocks on top of a parking garage to go learn about where food is grown, that's a really important piece of our work. That's meet people where they are, right? Yeah. That, that cliche. Um, I, I could go on with all of you for hours. This is 
deeply fascinating. And I think touching on the, the really rich kind of uh, emotional connections that we feel or need to restore to, to wild places is a, is a great place to leave this. I'm so grateful to all three of you. Thank you. I hope we'll continue the discussion. Lily, Meriwether, Grant. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. And thanks again to our supporters, Hearst Ranch, Big Green Egg, and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. I'm Kate Cox. Stay tuned for more from Slow Food Nations in Denver. Thank you.